In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, this Sunday we celebrate the Feast of the Most Holy Trinity, Trinity Sunday, the veritable close of Paschal Tide, the end of the Easter season. It's a bit sad, but it is the reality. And as is often the case, if we wish to get a true idea of the grandeur of this feast, of this august feast, we must look to the texts of the Church's sacred liturgy. Specifically, let us pause a moment on the words of the fifth antiphon, the divine, the divine office for the offices of lauds and vespers, from which are all things, through whom are all things, in which are all things, to him be glory forever. We don't celebrate some particular doctrine of the Catholic faith today, or rather we do, but it is a doctrine which is the one which makes possible all the others. We don't celebrate some particular saint or some particular moment in salvation history this Sunday. We celebrate the holy triune God himself, dwelling in the trinity of the three divine persons, co-equal in majesty from all eternity. Before the creation of the universe, we commemorate the sovereign God who precedes absolutely everything in the created order, and in whom every single moment in history and every creature, whether spiritual or material, has both its origin, its conservation in existence, and its end. It is this anteriority, this absolute and eternal primacy of the triune God before which the saints and angels in heaven tremble in awe. For almost 1,700 years now, Holy Mother Church has proclaimed the consubstantiality, exist, the existence in one divine nature of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Ever since the canonization of this dogma at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325, this has been recognized as the fundamental doctrine of the Catholic religion. So it is with great astonishment that anyone claiming for themselves the title of Christian would bring this teaching into question. Yet what does the historical record show? The Council of Nicaea, by promulgating the equality and divinity of each of the three divine persons, condemned the heretical doctrine of Arius and his followers, this heretical priest of Alexandria in Egypt, who held that the Son must necessarily be less than the Father. Why? Well, obviously because he's the Son, or obviously to Arius and those who, fo who followed his way of thinking. Because he is the Son, so their thinking went, he must be created. And the spirit of Arius has nevertheless continued to enjoy a certain influence, in particular among those religions which exist only today as a result of the schism of Martin Luther 
Many of us have had the experience of missionaries of some other religion coming to knock at our door or stopping us on the street, eagerly awaiting to share with us a strange gospel. These individuals, while surely possessed of good intentions, often make the same error regarding our Lord as does a large portion of the modern world. It is the false idea that while our Lord Jesus Christ was a good man, even a man chosen by God for the mission of our redemption, or at least as an example of the right way to lead our lives, that he was just that, a man, and not God. Nevertheless, there is no basis for such a belief. And it's even directly refuted by our Lord's words in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, in one of his many disputations with the Pharisees. The opposition between Christ and these iniquitous men comes to fever pitch in this exchange. Our Lord says, Abraham, your father, rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, Thou art not fifty years old. And hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, before Abraham was made, I am. Alas, this, this is too much for them to bear, and they take up stones to kill him. The Jews realize that he is retaking and applying to himself the words of God to Moses in the book of Exodus. When Moses asks God what his name is, and God responds, I am who am. God not only exists, he is the source of all existence. When you or I or any creature considers his essence, what he is, he sees that his essence is distinct from the fact that he exists. God, in, this, in God, however, this distinction disappears. His essence is to exist. A given man comes to the end of his life and inevitably dies. But human nature continues to exist in those still living. But God cannot die because to do so would contradict his very nature. Furthermore, it would not be enough to say that God has an existence, has his existence. He is, excuse me, it would not be enough to say that God possesses his essence. He is his essence. This is what distinguishes him from creatures. In each of the divine persons, therefore, resides the fullness of the divinity. Consequently, where there is the essence of the Father, there also is the Father in person. And it is the same for the Son and for the Holy Ghost. Moreover, as we know, the generation of the Son and the procession of the Holy Spirit from the Father and the Son, this procession known as spiration after the Latin word, spirare, to breathe, literally. This movement of the Holy, the Holy Spirit and the generation of the Son constitute a perfect procession 
within the interior life of the Holy Trinity. Because the nature of the Father is in the Son, and that of the Son is in the Father. The Father is in the Son in a reciprocal manner. So this can only lead us to the affirmation of the perfect consubstantiality, this sharing of the same divine nature of the three divine persons. They possess a nature, each of them, that is not simply similar, but numerically one. And it is not only the logic of theology and philosophy which demonstrates the consubst this consubstantiality of the three divine persons. Our Lord affirms it explicitly to St. Philip the Apostle when he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Gospel of St. John, chapter 14, verse 10. Our Lord puts it in terms even more incontrovertible when he affirms before the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. The Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. Here below, we're not capable of beholding the face of God. The sacred author tells us that he he dwells in an inaccessible light that our mortal eyes are not worthy to behold. Though it may seem so at times, God does not remain distant from us. God the Father sent his only Son into this world to suffer and die for all men, as all have sinned and need a Redeemer. Each of these three divine persons now dwell in our souls by the presence of sanctifying grace, this real participation in the divine nature. This is why the psalmist employs this mysterious phrase, you are gods, vos di estis, in the Latin of St. Jerome, in Psalm 81. Because those in the state of sanctifying grace, those whose souls are informed by charity, in other words, really possess God in their souls. The Holy Trinity really resides intrinsically, interiorly in their being. So on the occasion of this venerable feast, let us remember that to be Catholic is to be thoroughly Trinitarian, whether we find ourselves at home or before our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament here in the church, or in our office, or in our room, or in the redwood forests, wherever, whenever, let us always remember that we are in the presence of our Creator and the creator and conservator of all things, the holy triune God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.